All right, Revelation chapter 14, if you haven't turned there already, I invite you please to turn there. And we'll be finishing Revelation 14, which also means we'll be finishing the third cycle of visions that, are, that we see between chapters 4 and 22. These visions that John receives of the coming age. And in Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 14, we read, John writes, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So two weeks ago, it almost feels like an eternity, actually. I don't know why, it just feels like I've done so much since the last time we were here. But two weeks ago, we looked at verses 6 through 13 of chapter 14, and we saw uh, the three proclamations of the three angels that are flying directly overhead. Uh, And they're making these proclamations, they're preaching, the word there is preaching, they are preaching to those who dwell on the earth. And if you remember how we understand that in Revelation, those who dwell on the earth refers to the unbelievers, right? The, the wicked, those who are not sealed by God, not sealed by the Lamb with His name on their foreheads. So the first angel flies at the highest point of the sky. He's there at the pinnacle of the sky to be seen by all, and he preaches an everlasting gospel. And this is meant to depict the work of the church uh, during this church age, this period between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and and his return uh, in spreading the gospel to the whole earth. And the point of this first angel here is to show that when the end comes, there will be no excuse for those who dwell on the earth. Uh, There will be no excuse because this gospel is being preached. You know, the picture of an angel at the highest point in the sky is meant to depict the idea that he is seen by all. He is proclaiming a message that is heard by all. So there will be no excuse when it comes time at the end. And of course, the content of that everlasting gospel we see here in, in the chapter is to fear God, to give Him glory, and to worship Him. So this addresses the heart of these sinful people, the heart of the sin of unbelievers, because that's the three things they fail to do. They fail to fear God, they fail to glorify Him, and they fail to worship Him. So that's the first angel. The second angel here announces the fall of Babylon. And what does Babylon represent? 
What's that? Yeah the, yeah, the evil world system. Basically, it's everything in the world that's anti-God. Everything in the world that sets itself up against God. So it's the collective world order and system, if you will. So the second angel here pronounces the fall of Babylon. The world system has fallen. It is done because the end is near. The third angel finally then announces the judgment of God upon all those who receive the mark of the beast and worship him. So here now the third angel announces that judgment is coming to those who give themselves over to the beast, which is representative of evil world governments that are set up against God, that persecute God's people. And those who receive the mark of the beast, those who allow themselves to be under the control of the world system, will be judged. It will be their torment, as we see here, will be unending. They will have no rest, it says here. There will be no rest for them, day or night, as the smoke of their torment goes up into heaven. Now, the passage then closes, though, with an encouraging word regarding those who endure, the endurance of the saints, or those who, who the patience of the saints. They are blessed, we see. They are blessed because they will find rest. They will receive a reward for their labors. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And we saw the contrast there. While the, uh, the, while the believers receive rest from their labors, the unbelievers have no rest. They are tormented day and night and there is no rest for them to be found. So that kind of very vivid um, contrast there between these two. So that's what we saw last time. Now before we get into the passage tonight, I do want to take a moment to discuss what we have here, which is a harvest motif that we see in Scripture quite often. Um, now it's obviously, you know, when we speak of harvest, that's something that is very near and dear to most of you who are here, right? <laughs> I mean, everyone, has, everyone in this audience has a good idea of harvest and what that means and what that pertains to. Now, I know we're past harvest time and we're now heading into that sort of you know, winter time where you're taking care of your equipment and making sure everything's ready for next year. But here, the Bible likes to use easy-to-understand agricultural metaphors to describe eternal truth. Because just like planting seed, watering seed, harvesting the crop, that doesn't change, right? The equipment gets more uh, expensive. The equipment gets more sophisticated. The techniques might get more refined, but you still got to put seed in the ground. You still got to water the ground, and you still got to pull the crop out of the ground. That process never changes, and eternal truth never changes either. And we have to understand, too, the Bible was written to a mainly agricultural uh, type of people. So the Bible here uses this harvest motif to describe what happens at the end of the age. So the harvest is used to sort of depict judgment or the, you know, the, the reaping of the, the earth's crop and the earth's vine, as we'll see here. Um, keep your finger in Revelation. Let's turn to Matthew 13. Because Matthew uses this harvest motif in some of his parables when he talks about the kingdom. And again, just a little bit of context, Matthew's 
gospel is, the purpose behind his gospel is to convince a largely Jewish audience that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham, the son of David. So he links them to two very important figures in Israel's history. The patriarch, the great patriarch Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and David, the great king. And to show that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham, son of David, i.e. he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the son of God. And here in uh, chapter 13, well, before we get to chapter 13, Jesus is seen... Did I say 14? I meant 13. Yes, 13. My bad. Stay in 13. Don't go to 14. (laughs) But Jesus, when he breaks onto the scene early in Matthew's Gospel, the first words out of his mouth are preaching the coming of the kingdom. That's what John the Baptist said when he came onto the scene. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus came on the scene, that's exactly what he said. He preached the same sermon. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If I preach the same sermon Sunday after Sunday, you might think I was getting lazy, but that's what they were doing there. They were preaching the same sermon. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. However, this kingdom was not materializing in the way that many of the people in that day had thought it would materialize. They thought Jesus would come in as a king, as an actual physical king coming to drive the Romans out and to reestablish David's kingdom. And when he wasn't doing that, they started to get a little irritated with him. And they started to question him and started to challenge his authority. So in chapter 13, Jesus here gives a series of parables. He gives a series of parables that describe the nature of the kingdom to tell you this is what the kingdom is like. Now, of course, he also uses parables to sort of disguise his teaching. We often think of parables as something that illuminates, helps to illuminate the the, the meaning of the story. But we see here in Matthew 13 that Jesus says, no, I speak in parables so that hearing you will not hear, seeing you will not see. It is a judgment on them. They wanted him to to be a certain way and to answer certain questions. And Jesus says, no, if you're not going to bow to my authority, I'm going to veil the, the truth and the mysteries of the kingdom from you in these parables. Now, in Matthew, again, in Matthew 13, he tells a series of parables that describe the nature of the kingdom. In the first one, very well-known parable, the parable of the sower. We see that. Why am I in Mark? I need to be in Matthew. No wonder it was looking right. Wrong M. Okay. In Matthew 13, the very first parable out of the blocks here in, chat, in verses 1 through 9 is the parable of the sower. So we see in Matthew 13, 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house, sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprung up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now he explains the meaning of the parable uh, in verses 18 through 23 because the disciples were like, please tell us the, the meaning of this parable. We're, 
We're your disciples. We're typically not very bright <laughs> for some reason or another. They always tend to be the guys that are sort of like not very bright. That's okay. We're not very bright at all too sometimes, right? We can be pretty much like the, the disciples as well. But anyway, he says, okay, hear then the parable, verse 18, of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, and another thirty. Now, Jesus' point in telling this parable, of course, is that the kingdom is not going to be one that comes by military conquest. It is not one that grows because King Jesus comes riding on a white horse like He will at the end of Revelation with an army behind Him to drive the Romans out. It is one in which the Word is sown. The Word is sown, and as people receive the Word, they are brought into the kingdom. And we see four different responses to that Word that is sown. So, the one who sows the word is, you know, now again, if farmers, you're probably saying, why are you sowing over here in the weeds? And why don't you pull the weeds first? Or why are you sowing in the rocky ground? Why don't you break that up a little bit and make it nice, rich soil before you put... That's not the point, okay? The point isn't that the, the farmer is supposed to be the perfect farmer. The idea is that the word gets scattered all over the place. That's what we are to do. That's what those who have the word are to do. We are to be as I like to call it, indiscriminate seed scatterers. We just take the seed and just spray it around. It doesn't matter where it falls. Don't worry about where it falls. Just worry about scattering that seed. But here we see the varying responses. We see one has no response at all. And the devil comes and just snatches that away. That's what the birds of the air represent, the evil one. Then we see two kind of nominal responses. Okay, One receives the words like, oh, this is wonderful. And he's like, oh, and he's on fire for the Lord. And then all of a sudden, you know, persecution hits. And he starts to get a little bit of grief for his faith. And then he's like, uh, he turns away because he has no root. He grew up too fast. He, he has no root. The other one receives it, starts to grow, but then is too concerned about the cares of this world. That's the one in the weed-choked area. And that seed, that grain gets cut out. So you notice it's not so much that you know, true believers are ones that have plants that grow. It's one that bears fruit, right? Because these other two, they grow, but they bear no fruit. It's the one that bears fruit. And when it bears fruit, it bears bumper crops here, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. So the kingdom is one that goes forth as the word is spread and as people receive that word. Now, he tells another parable about the nature of the kingdom in verses 24 to 30. Uh, depending on your heading, you might see the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the weeds, uh, however, you, however it, it's headed there. But in verse 24, he says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. That's um, a darnel. It's, a, it's supposed to be like something that looks like wheat, but is not wheat. So sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the, of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now we... we, we know this because we've read this before, right? So we know what these images depict. The disciples weren't quite so clear on that because later on they ask in verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So then he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And again, here the point of this parable, of course, is that in this mystery form of the kingdom, unbelievers will coexist with believers. That's the point. The church is a mixed group. Right? The church has true believers. The church has uh, unbelievers who are False believers, false converts. We will coexist alongside believers and we won't be able to tell them apart. That's why the Darnell looks like a wheat and you can't tell them. And, and even the, the master of the field says, don't go pull the weeds now because you might accidentally pull up some, some good wheat. So we'll, we'll sort this all out at the harvest time. That's what, that's what the parable is about. At the end of the age. Now the harvest motif here is very strong in Jesus' teaching and it clearly pictures the end of the age. His parable is very clear about it. He says, the harvest is the end of the age. (laughs) In case you were wondering what the harvest was, it is the end of the age. He's very clear about this. There's no mystery about that. In fact, we see this clearly in the prophet Joel. You don't need to turn there, but in the book of Joel, and we're going to look at this verse again later, but in Joel chapter 3, uh, he talks about the harvest, and it's going to be a passage that sounds very similar to what we saw tonight. In Joel chapter 3, uh, we see in verse 13, the prophet says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. I mean, it's very, very similar to what we saw in Revelation 14. And in Jesus' own teaching about his return, That's in the Olivet Discourse, right? That's at the end of Matthew's Gospel. You can flip over to Matthew 24. In his teaching in the Olivet Discourse, which we have referenced a few times before in our study, he describes the end of the age in another clear 
harvest motif in chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. We're here. This is the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So this is Jesus' teaching about His own return. Very similar to that parable about the, the weed and the wheats. The weeds and the wheat where He says He sends out His angels to gather and the, the weeds go into the furnace and the wheat goes into the barn. And here at the end of the age, Jesus is going to send out His angels to gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Again, very reminiscent of the gathering or of wheat at harvest time. And then at the end of chapter 25 in this discourse, we see the final judgment. The final judgment. Now, this is not a harvest motif as much as it is sort of more of like a farm motif if you have goats and sheep on your farm. But you know, you know how the story goes. You got this, you know, the, the unbelievers will come and he's going to separate them like a, like a farmer separates his goats from his sheep. And he turns to the goats and says, you know, I'm, you're going to go into judgment because you didn't do this, 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 and this. He goes to the sheep, you will go in and enjoy the pleasures of your master because you did this, 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 and this. And of course, each side says, when did we do these things? And to the sheep, he says, when you were kind and, and courteous to a brother and sister in Christ, you were doing that to me. And to the goats, he says, when you weren't kind and courteous and and and." Uh, you know, merciful to, to the least of these, then you were not doing that to me. So again, and it says that the goats will go into the final judgment, the sheep will go with the Lord into the kingdom. So we have this harvest motif. The harvest motif speaks of the end of the age, the great ingathering when Christ will come and He will finally bring judgment and He'll do so first by pulling out His own and then the rest will go to judgment. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage tonight. The harvest motif at the end of the age and the return of Christ. And in fact, what we see here in reality are two harvests. Right? You see in verses 14 through 16 a harvest of grain, if you will, you know, reaping wheat or some kind of grain. And then verses 17 through 20, you see sort of a harvest of grapes, grape clusters. So, you know, the grain is one type of harvest. The grape clusters, which go into the wine press, that's another type of harvest. And I think it's going to be pretty clear as we go on. The, earth, the harvest of the earth's grain is the righteous. Those are the wheat that Jesus gathers into his barn that go into the kingdom. Obviously, the, the grapes... <laughs> being tread upon in the wine press with the blood flowing, I think we could pick up that clue that that's the harvest of the unrighteous at the end of the age. So that's what we see here going into this passage. So let's first look at the harvest of the earth's grain in verses 14 through 16. 
So after the proclamation of these three angels that we saw in the previous passage, John receives another vision in verse 14, where he says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And of course, now you've got that familiar, then I saw, or then I looked. Um, Again, this is language that John uses frequently to indicate, I am getting another vision. I looked and I saw something else. And then I looked and I saw, and then I looked and I saw, and I beheld, so on and so forth. He's getting another vision. And the vision here is of one that looks like a son of man seated on the cloud with a crown on his head and a sickle in his hand. Now, again, just a little bit of context to situate us here. Remember again, Revelation 12 through 14. It's the third cycle of visions. I mentioned that earlier. And it's a cycle of what we've been calling the symbolic histories because the visions that we see in chapters 12 through 14 kind of give us a big picture view of this period of redemptive history between the resurrection and ascension of Christ and his return at the end of the age. And it does so by showing us these symbolic figures. Okay, we saw the dragon and the woman and the child and the first beast and the second beast and the 144,000 and the lamb and and now we see the Son of Man. So we see these symbolic figures, and it's focusing on this. And really what it's doing, it's just showing you the spiritual warfare that happens now. It's happening now. It happened then. It'll happen until the time that Christ returns. But here, unlike the other cycles, because every other cycle we saw so far, the seals and the trumpets, when I say seals, I don't mean like the animal. Okay, I mean like the wax seal on a scroll. In the seals and the trumpets, every other one ends with final judgment and the return of Christ. But we don't actually see the return of Christ, right? And when when the sixth seal is cracked, um, you get you know earthquakes and things happening, stars falling, and the people hiding under the mountains and all kinds of things. And then when the seventh seal is cracked, you hear silence for about thirty minutes, and then you see fire being thrown down into the earth. And then when the when the last trumpet the seventh trumpet uh, sounds. Uh, again, you see this announcement that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. So we see that the kingdom has become you know, God's kingdom now. All the things that were on the earth are now God's kingdom. And then uh, we see you know, the temple of heaven is open and we see the ark and flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquakes and so on and so forth. So they they all signify the end, but we don't actually see Jesus coming. Here, at the end of this third cycle, we actually see, in a sense, Jesus coming. We see here one like the Son of Man, and I'm going to spoil it here, spoiler alert, but that's Jesus, okay? (laughs) One like the Son of Man on the cloud with the crown is Jesus. He is Jesus. It's, uh, and I say, Now, some will say it seems to be Jesus, and I say seems because there are some who will say that it's not Jesus, and we'll look at that in a moment. But again, this imagery points to things we've seen earlier in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 1. In verse 7, John, writing to the churches at the very beginning, says, Behold, he, that is Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. And if you drop down to verse 13, 
And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So here, you know, earlier, John sees visions of Jesus on clouds, uh, uh, described like a son of man. So these are um, images of Jesus. We saw it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, when the coming of the Son of Man, we'll see the Son of Man will come on the clouds with the angels and He will gather His elect. In fact, when Jesus was on trial and He was being questioned by the Jewish leadership, they asked Him flat out, they said, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Tell us plainly. And He replied in Matthew 26, 64, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with His angels. And then the the, the priests said they tore their robes in anger and frustration and said, what need have we of further witnesses? He has blasphemed. He has, he, has, he has convicted himself. He has condemned himself with his own words. But all the Son of Man imagery comes from Daniel's um, prophecy. And again, remember, you know, if we want to understand Revelation, we don't turn to the newspaper, we go Where? Old Testament, right. We go to the Old Testament. And we've referenced this passage before in the study, but Daniel's image, visions and imagery has a lot of play because John draws a lot of these images into his own uh, that he sees in his revelation as well. And in Daniel 7, which we'll get to when we get, you know, while we're in Daniel, we're going to, I think, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll be in Daniel 5, so you've got to wait Three weeks, you know, three Sundays. <laughs> but we'll get there, Lord willing. I always have to add that, make sure, you know, because I don't want to assume, you know, maybe the, maybe the Lord comes before them. Wouldn't that be great? That would be wonderful. <laughs> but Daniel 7 is the bookend of Daniel 2, okay? It's the last chapter that's written in Aramaic in the original language. And these Aramaic um, sections in Daniel are sort of like, you ever see like those Russian nesting dolls, right? Okay, it's kind of like that, right? So the outer sections correspond to one another, then the next two correspond to one another, and then the intersection corresponds to one another. So chapters 2 and 7 are related in Daniel. Chapters 3 and 6 are related, and then chapters 4 and 5 are related. Because chapters 2 and 7 show visions of coming kingdoms, and then showing the vision of the, you know, the kingdom of God destroying the coming kingdoms. Chapters uh, 3 and 6 show um, God's people being persecuted by the world, right? Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. Daniel chapter 6, that's the lion's den, right? Daniel himself is thrown to the lion's den. Chapters 4 and 5 show God's judgment on worldly kingdoms. That's chapter 4 we saw a couple weeks back. That's when Nebuchadnezzar got humiliated. He got turned into a beast. And then chapter 5 is... The writing on the wall where Belteshazzar, no, sorry, that's Daniel's name, Belshazzar, is, you know, he's having a party and he sees his hand writing on the wall and he, you know, it says that his heart sinks and his knees knock, he, he like falls apart. And Daniel says, the kingdom is being ripped from your hand. God is judging you, okay? So anyway, this is not a sermon on Daniel. So I'm, you could tell I've got Daniel on the mind because I've been, anyway. Daniel 7, <laughs> in verse 13. See, you've got to rein me in or else I'll just keep going all over the place. Um, but in Daniel 7, 
the early section again, he says he sees these visions of these beasts, these beasts rising up. And we saw how these beasts corresponded to the beast in uh, Revelation 13. But he sees a lion, he sees a bear, he sees a leopard, and then he sees a dreadful beast that's ugly and all these things. And these are coming kingdoms. And then he sees the kingdom of God. That starts in verse 9 of chapter 7. And he says, I, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand. That's a big number. I, I don't want to try to do the math. What's a thousand thousands? That's a million. And 10,000 times 10,000, that's four, eight, whatever eight zeros after a one is. So three, that's like a hundred million. Okay. It's a lot. Stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Verse 11, I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and that's the blasphemous horn that we see earlier. Uh, and it's like the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So whenever you see the Son of Man being referenced in the New Testament, you know, oftentimes people say, well, that's a description of Jesus' humanity. And it kind of is. But it's really pointing you back to Daniel 7 and to show that this is actually a divine character because he goes before the Ancient of Days, he receives the authority from the Ancient of Days and establishes an everlasting kingdom after all the kingdoms of the world have been uh, subdued and destroyed. So here, we see the Son of Man language is drawn and it comes from Daniel 7. So again, you can go back to Revelation now. Um, in my mind, there is no doubt this is Jesus in verse 14 here. Because the Son of Man imagery is so clear. Cloud, Son of Man, crown, and everything coming down uh, out of heaven. It's no, it, to me, there's no doubt. He returns at the end of the age to gather His elect and bring judgment on the wicked. That's what He's coming for. And furthermore, John sees Jesus here having on His head a golden crown and in His hand a sharp sickle. Now this crown is the victor's crown. It's, the word in Greek is Stephanos. So if you know anybody named Stephen, their name means crown. So you can next time you see a friend named Stephen, say, hi, crown, how's it going? And he'll look at you and give you a weird look. But anyway, Stephanos means crown. It's the victor's crown. It's the laurel that you would get at, the, at winning an athletic tournament like the Olympics. And the crown indicates that Jesus is the victor. He has come. He has won. He is now he is the one who has conquered sin and death and alone is worthy to rule. And the sickle, of course, that's a farming instrument. Now, you guys, are sickles still used at all? <laughs> Ever? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm asking. I'm seeing one head shake and one head say no. 
You, okay. So yeah, so obviously you know what a sickle is. You, know, you, know, you just kind of gather the wheat, right? Or if you're watching some weird horror movie, right? There's always some guy running around with a sickle in his hand. You know, to which, well, anyway, I'll just stop there. The sickle is an instrument to harvest grain. And it shows here Jesus returning at the end with the crown, having won the victory, with the authority to rule, and to gather the harvest in. So after seeing this one, like the Son of Man, John then sees another angel in verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And that's why some here will argue that this one like the Son of Man is not Jesus. Because you have an angel coming out and giving Jesus orders. That seems incongruous, right? The angels don't order Jesus around, so what's going on here? Well, note where this angel is coming from. Where is this angel coming from in verse 15? Okay, and what does the temple represent? It's the dwelling place of God. And what are angels in general? They're messengers, right? God is sending this angel out. He's coming from the temple, from the presence of God, coming to tell the sun to harvest the earth. The temple is God's house, is where God lives, especially the heavenly temple that we see here. And the angel is relaying a word from the Father to the Son to stick the sickle in and reap. So I'm going to stick with my interpretation that this is still Jesus, that the Son of Man is still Jesus. Now again here, the order is to thrust your sickle and reap for the time to come has uh, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, farmers, again, I'll ask you this question. When do you know it's harvest time? Does harvest happen on the third Tuesday in September every year? <laughs> no. When do you know, so when do you know to, when, when it's time to harvest? When, when the grain's ripe, right? You just know. You just know the time is there. And here, at the end of the age, the time has come, we're, ter- we're told, the earth is ripe. And that word ripe is a very interesting word which you corn farmers would like um, because the word literally means dry. When it's dry, right? And, and that's exactly when you want to start harvesting your corn, when it's dry. See, when I, just to show you my colossal ignorance of farming, when I first came here, I saw all this dry corn. I said, that looks bad. The corn's supposed to be green, right? <laughs> of course, that was around, you know, my first fall here. It's like, no, 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 that's, 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 it's ripe, it's ready, it's getting, it's getting ready to, to harvest the corn. So you all can make fun of me, you know. You probably do anyway, it's okay. But... What's that? What if you harvest Yeah, I guess what would happen if you tried to run green corn through your combine would it just like gum up the works i just lock everything up what's that okay (laughs) so anyway the word means dry you know it's harvest time in nebraska when the corn is getting dry and that's exactly what's happening here and that's what jesus does he reaps verse 16 
So the one who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. He takes the sickle and harvests the earth's grain. Jesus comes at the end of the age to gather his own out of the world before the great and terrible day of judgment comes. And the harvest of grain here can be seen as the harvest of the first fruits. Now we got into this, this would have been probably about a month ago because it's two lessons ago. We got into this because when we were looking at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14, uh, it's, it's said in verse 4, it is these who have not, def- the 144,000, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he, he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And I've read some commentaries on that. And it says here that the 144,000 are, are the first fruits. And then this harvest of grain that we see now in verses 14 through 16 are the rest of the godly harvest. Now, I argued back then, four weeks ago, that no, the 144,000 are the first fruits because the first fruits represent God's portion. When you were giving the first fruits as an offering to God, that you took the best, that's God's portion, the rest is yours. Okay, so God is taking his portion, the rest is the world's. Okay, that's what he's saying here. That's what I argued back then, and I'm going to continue to argue that here because I think these are two, I think the, the first fruits and the 144,000 are the same because we argued the 144,000 is the complete number of God's people. If, if, there's, if, that, if they're just the first fruits and there's more to come, then they're not the complete number of God's people. I mean, I think that stands to, to reason. All right, so uh, this harvest here, of course, is the first fruits. It's God's portion of the earth's harvest. Now, it's interesting, too, because in this passage, we see there's, there's also some, some debate uh, between these two harvests, because some see both harvests here as showing God's judgment on the wicked, including uh, a scholar named G.K. Beale, who actually wrote a very popular and definitive commentary on, on Revelation. He sees both harvests here as harvests of the wicked. Some see both harvests as being a gathering of the church through salvation and martyrdom. I think both of those views, it, it just doesn't fit. I, I just don't think it fits with just reading this text clearly and, and, and plainly. Uh, I believe here the grain is the righteous. Jesus gathers them. The rest are going into, because it's grain and it's grapes. It's two different types of harvest here. So I see the first harvest that we're just looking at here as a harvest of the righteous. And what we're about to look at in a few moments is the harvest of the wicked, the grapes. And I think that makes the most sense. So then we move on. And in verses 17 through 20, after the one like the Son of Man has harvested the earth's grain, John sees now two more angels. And it's interesting here too because you see in the previous section, right, we saw three angels making proclamations. Then we see Jesus and now we see three more angels. It's kind of like Jesus is bracketed between these groups of three angels here. So we're about to see two more angels. and And we see another angel coming out in Revelation 14, verses 17 and 18, where we see another angel came out of the temple in heaven. So again, he's coming from the presence of God. And he too had a sharp sickle. And then another angel came out from the altar 
We'll speak about that in a moment. The angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the other angel with a sharp sickle. Now put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. We'll stop there. I was about to go on, but we'll stop there for a moment. So again, one of these two angels comes out of the temple, which is in heaven, the presence of God, just like the first angel we saw in verse 8, 15. And he also is coming from the presence of God. And moreover, this angel also has a sharp sickle. He's getting ready to harvest. Jesus is harvested. Now this angel is getting ready to harvest. The second angel comes out from the altar. Now, where else, do you remember in Revelation, where else we've seen an altar before? I'm kind of given away by turning back in Revelation. If you think in chapter 6, do you remember when the fifth seal was broken? We saw the altar. The altar in heaven. We see this in verse 9 of chapter 6. When he, that is Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So this altar here, these martyrs cry out to the Lord to vindicate us. We have been slain for our testimony. How long are we going to have to wait for justice? And at that point, the Lord says, Patience. Just wait a little longer. Just wait a long. It's coming. Judgment is coming. They are comforted and told to wait. We also see the altar in Revelation chapter 8. When the seventh seal is broken, there was silence in heaven. And then in verse 2, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now this is a replica, or maybe I'd be better to say this is the heavenly original of which the earthly replica was made after. This is the altar that stands in the holy place. So in the temple, you've got the court, you've got the holy place, and then you've got the most holy place. And in the holy place, among other things, you have an altar of incense where the priests would go in and offer incense there. The incense, the smoke would rise up. They were representative of the prayers of the people going up before God. The other altar was the one in the courtyard where they did all the burnt offerings on. That's the bronze altar. So this altar we, say, we see here is the same altar, I believe, that this angel is coming out of. And I think, it, I'm not going to make, uh, I'm not going to die on this hill, but I'm just going to make the suggestion that perhaps this angel we see here in Revelation 14, the one who has power 
over authority over fire who comes from the altar is probably that same angel we see in Revelation 8 who is standing there with the censer and grabs the fire and tosses it onto the earth. I can't prove that. I'm just, I'm just making an educated guess. You can be, feel free to disagree with me on that one. But anyway, this angel comes from the altar and commands the other angel with the sickle to gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So just like in verses 14 through 16, we see that the time is ripe and the grapes are ready. They're, however grapes look when they're ready to be plucked, um, I'm sure they look juicy and wonderful because there's going to be a lot of juice flowing here we're going to see in a moment. So these are very juicy looking grapes. And again, this fits in nicely with what we saw in Matthew 13 verses 41 and 42 as the Son of Man sends out His angels to gather the wicked, the weeds, right? And it's interesting to note here, because in the first section, right, verses 14 through 16, who does the reaping? Jesus, the Son of Man. In verses 17 through 20, who does the reaping? An angel. So it's interesting that the Son of Man takes a personal sort of care of reaping, right? He reaps the grain himself. The grapes he gives to a functionary, right? He says, okay, angel, you go reap the grapes. And there's a commentator, Richard Phillips suggests, this may reflect that while Jesus is immediately involved in the salvation of his people, the judgment of the rebellious, while under his authority, does not involve such personal contact. Right? So he takes personal, special care to gather the wheat. And while he has authority over the gathering of the grapes, he's like, Angel, you go get the grapes. Right? Because I love my own. These are the ones that are going for judgment. And that's precisely what the angel does. He thrusts his sickle into the earth, and the results are graphic and terrifying in verses 19 and 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. How high is that? About here? <laughs> about here, maybe? All right, so I'm about 5'11 and some change. So that's about five feet. <laughs> It's a lot of blood, <laughs> and it flowed for 600 stadia. Does anybody have a translation that says an actual distance that I would know? <laughs> What's that? 184 miles? Okay. Yeah. That's okay. I've got a footnote that says 184 miles. Okay. We'll get to that in a moment. So the, the angel gathers these grapes, tosses them in the wine press. They're trodden and this massive river of blood flows out. And this is all done outside of the city, as we see in verse 20. Outside of the city, this blood flows, and it's up as high as here, and, and it goes for a long, long, long way. The grapes are gathered and thrown into the great wine press of the wrath of God, which is, of course, that's where you get the phrase, the grapes of wrath. So if you've read the, is that Steinbeck, I think, that wrote that book? You know, so if you're familiar with that book, I believe I probably read that in grade school many, many years ago. 
and I may have seen the movie, I don't know. But anyway, that's where you get the phrase, the grapes of wrath. That's also where you get the phrase in, the, what is it, the um, Battle Hymn of the Republic, right? You know, something where the grapes of wrath are stored. You know, that's kind of how the words, I don't think it's in our hymnal. But anyway, grapes of wrath come from this. Now, in ancient days, a wine press was constructed out of rock or brick, and it had two levels. Okay, there was an upper trough where the grapes would be trampled underfoot. Then the juice would flow down into a lower trough to be collected into whatever they collected the juice into. And here, this is very, and I, 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 you know, all joking aside, this is a very graphic illustration of God's wrath and judgment, right? Because we see these grapes, which are representative of the wicked, they're being squished, okay? They're being trodden under. Now, I don't know, when I think of wine press, I think of the Lucille, you know, the I Love Lucy episode where she's stomping around in the wine press, and it's kind of funny. But that's what God's doing, right? He's stomping around in the wine press, of, just stomping on these grapes so that the blood gushes out. Now, again, this is revelation. This is symbolic imagery, right? This is apocalyptic literature. We're not going to picture people literally being thrown into a big, massive wine press and a big you know, foot comes down, you know, starts to squish people. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But it's a graphic representation of judgment, of wrath, right? Are the, are the grapes loved? <laughs> are the grapes care? No, the grapes are like, you know, squish that grape, get that grape. We looked at this again. Uh, we, you know, the passage of Joel, which mimic, uh, you know, almost says these same exact words, but also in Isaiah 63, uh, another passage which talks about this, you know, gives you this imagery of a wine press being trodden out. Isaiah 63, the first three verses of that chapter. In Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3. The prophet says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Very graphic. Right? Here's the victor. You know, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save God, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man. And the questioner says, why are your garments red? You know, Grandma, what might you know, what big eyes you have? All well, the better to see you with, my dear. Why is your garment red? Because I've been trotting in this wine press, taking vengeance out. I trod them not in my love. I didn't trod them in my joy or mercy. No, I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath, and their blood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. You can peek ahead when we get there eventually, but in Revelation 19, and I think this is drawing exactly out of that Isaiah 63 imagery 
Isaiah or uh, Revelation 19, another vision that John has, which we will, Lord willing, get to. Starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's where you get the song, right? Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his room. Many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, again, the picture of the final battle, which is not really much of a battle, okay? I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings books, right? I've read the books. I've watched the movies millions of times. And you watch the movies, and how much, well, if you've ever read the books, you know, how much time do they spend on the great battles in, in the Lord of the Rings? Not much, right? I think the battles of, Battle of Helm's Deep is one chapter, which isn't very long, you know, in other words, Tolkien didn't spend a lot of time focusing on these battles. The story was being told. Now you watch the movies, how much time is devoted to the battles? That you see? <laughs> Quite a bit. I think like half of Two Towers, the movie, is the Battle of Helm's Deep. And half of the third movie is the Battle of Minas Tirith. And then when you get to The Hobbit, my goodness, the last whole entire movie is the Battle of the Five Armies, in a book that was no thicker than this, they turned into three movies. I, I don't get that. Anyway, the point is, for Hollywood, you want a big you know, battle scene and all this going back and forth. And every time you're going to see battle lines being drawn in the book of Revelation, there's no fighting. Okay? The battle lines are drawn, and then Jesus says a word, and then the, you know, the armies that are right against them just go, you know, they just, they just die. You know, it says he slew them from, with the, the sword that comes out of his mouth. The sword is the word of God. Jesus speaks a word. The armies, collected armies of the earth just drop and then they're trodden in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So in Revelation 19, we get the same picture as Jesus' picture. It's this great warrior on a white horse who slays all the arrayed armies of the earth with the sword of his mouth, and we're told that he himself treads that winepress. So to see the wicked as grapes to be squashed under the feet of God in some cosmic winepress is truly graphic and gruesome. And again, so bloody is the slaughter that verse 20 says, blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle, for 1,600 furlongs, a terrible, veritable river of blood that gushes out of this wine press. Now, when you think of God, and be honest here, do you picture him as some angry God with a gruesome wine press that he uses to squash unbelievers in? No. I mean, that's not how I picture God. At least that's 
not how I'd like to picture God. <laughs> and I'd warrant this is not the picture many Christians have of God. When you think of God, what do you think of? Mercy. Mercy. Love. Love. Right. Not a God, you know, but... He is a God of wrath, right. And why, why is it that God can be merciful to us? Who was trodden in the winepress of God's wrath so that we didn't have to be? Jesus, right, exactly. So it's not that God is not wrathful. It's just he's not wrathful to us because Jesus took that wrath. He was the one himself. It's interesting because, you know, it's kind of ironic in a sense because he was the one who was trodden for us. And at the end of the age, he's the one going to be doing the treading. Okay? But we don't like to think of God like this. We like to think of God as a God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy. We don't like this vengeful, wrathful God. It almost seems like it's ungodlike to be wrathful. Because the reason why is because, you know, we look at ourselves, right? Okay, I, I know myself. When I get angry... Very rarely am I angry for any righteous reasons, okay? And I'll just speak of myself here. Very, very rarely when I lose my temper is for a righteous reason. It is almost always because I'm being a selfish jerk, okay? That's why I get angry. So I don't like to think, well, God gets angry. He's not a selfish jerk. He's not a, he's, he's, no, he's, he's holy. He's right. He's perfect. But, but Jesus got angry, right? When he cleansed the temple, he got angry. Why? Because they were blaspheming the temple. The temple was a house of prayer. And they were turning it into a den of thieves. You are disgracing my father's house. So he got angry. And he took a whip of, you know, he made a whip out of cords. Probably, you know, good Lyndon Oxner rope. And he went and he turned over the tables and whipped the people and kicked them out. Wrath, anger, judgment, these are also attributes of God. And a God who refuses to punish the unrepentant sinner is not a God of justice. Again, remember those voices under the altar in Revelation chapter 6. The fifth seal is broken. They're under the altar. What are they saying to God? How long? We have been martyred. We have been slain for our testimony. How long until you take vengeance for us? And God says, it's coming. And here we see it. Right? If God said, I'm not going to take vengeance because I'm a God of love, I'm a God of mercy, I'm not going to take... <laughs> then the martyrs would have a gripe, <laughs> I would think. You know, because people who are slain for the testimony of God, if God does not take justice out on them, then they have something of which to complain. On July 8th, 1741... I think that's before all of us were born, right? No one here born in 1741. <laughs> July 8th, 1741, the great American Puritan Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I had to read that in seminary. Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And in this sermon, Edwards goes to great lengths to describe the wrath and anger of God that awaits the unbeliever. Now, stories are told that Edwards had his notes. He never looked up, and he read his notes in a very monotone way. That's what the stories say. And 
he preached that sermon to such great effect that people were wailing in the seats as he preached and, and described the wrath of God in exquisite detail for the unbeliever. He says you're like a spider hung by a web over the flame as it comes up and other descriptions about the wrath of God that awaits you. And people were crying, how can we be saved? And that sermon, among others, sparked what was called the first great awakening in the Americas, in the early, before America was a country, but in the colonies. And this first great awakening swept through the, the region and great masses of people were converted under the preaching of guys like Edward and George Whitfield and others. Now the point isn't to scare people into heaven. You're not going to scare anybody to heaven. You're not going to scare anybody, and in, in, you know, you're not going to argue anybody into heaven. You're not going to, because it's God that works in our hearts. But God can use that to work in your hearts. He can, he can, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can regenerate you on the spot, and you hear sinners in the hands of the angry God, and then you you wail in the in the in the aisles, claiming, "How can I be saved?" And again, the point isn't to scare people, but to accurately and truthfully proclaim God's word and his judgment and his wrath. Because you're either going to face God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or you're going to face God clothed in your own righteousness, which is filthy rags, that Isaiah says. My righteousness is as a filthy garment. And I think if you try to go before God in your own righteousness, it's going to win you a one-way ticket to the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. Right? Well, a couple of things before we close here. First, this trampling of, in the wine press occurs outside the city. Outside the city. And this reflects Old Testament passages that, that say that, you know, the, like anything unclean has to be taken outside of the camp. Okay, so they would, they would slay these animals in the temple practices and the sacrifices, and then the carcasses were taken outside of the camp because they were unclean, because you can't have anything unclean in the community of God's people. It has to be taken outside, dealt with, and then that person has to go through some purifying ritual to become ceremonial, ceremonially clean again to enter into the congregation. So this reflects that these carcasses and other uncleanness was to be taken outside of the camp of the people. It also signifies that when heavenly Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, there will, be, uh, there will by no means enter into it anything that defiles. Right? We see that later in, in the book of Revelation. The heavenly Jerusalem comes down and says nothing will be able to enter into that city that will defile or make anything unclean. And the wicked have nothing to do with the righteous. So this judgment is happening outside of the holy city. And then finally, it also mirrors how Christ was crucified. Where was Christ crucified? You sense a theme? Outside of the city, right? He He was crucified on Golgotha, which was outside of Jerusalem. So all of this is shown that judgment happens away from the camp, away from the holy city, away from God's people happens outside of the city. And then secondly, the significance of the 1,600 furlongs or 1,600 uh, stadia or the 184 miles or whatever. Now I've read some of this and some, you know, some commentators will argue that that's the actual area covered 
by the area of, of Israel or Palestine from north to south. It's 184 square miles. So this blood that flows, flows representative, you know, the length of all of Israel. Maybe. I would like to suggest perhaps it means that the fullness of the peoples of the world will be in that wine press. All of, it will be, all of them will be killed because when you think of the number four, okay, the number 1600 can break down into four times four times 10 times 10, okay? Four, you know, talks about, you know, how many, how many winds are there, the four winds? How many corners of the earth are there, the four corners? How many points in a compass, the four points in a compass? So in other words, unbelievers from all over the place will be brought into this wine press. And then 10 is usually a number that means, you know, fullness, you know, 10 times 10, 1,000, it's sort of like to the superlative degree. In other words, I think it just means to suggest no one escapes the wrath of God. Everyone who is a dweller on the earth, who is an unbeliever, will not escape the wrath of God. They will be trodden under uh, in this winepress of the wrath of God. So, as we close now, this passage here, I think, there's a couple of things. If you remember way back in the beginning when we looked at different ways to interpret this book, one of them was the preterist view. The preterist view suggests that most, if you're a full preterist, you're, you're a heretic. But partial preterist, no, it's just true. Because a full preterist says everything, including the return of Christ, has been fulfilled and there's nothing left to await us. Which, that's not what any Christian believes. All right, partial preterists will say most of Revelation is fulfilled in the past. Most of this was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and all of this. I think this passage speaks against preterism because if we look, when Jesus comes, all of the earth is harvested, right? All of the grain is harvested, all of the grapes are harvested, and all of them are trodden in the, in the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. If that's just Jerusalem in 70 A.D., then what's left to come? So I think this, this argues against a preterist view. And I would like to suggest, perhaps, it also argues against a premillennial view. We'll get to the millennium when we get to chapter 20, Lord willing. But typically, the premillennial view says that Christ returns and establishes his 1,000-year kingdom. Here we see Jesus returning, and what happens? We see judgment. It's happening right now. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. When the Son of Man comes, judgment. Then the kingdom. <laughs> then the fullness of the kingdom. So I would think it would argue against both of these. But also, I think this passage can be used as a corrective against, I guess, envying the freedom of the unbelievers, you know, Sometimes if you're a believer and you see other people out there who are unbelievers and they look like they're having so much fun in the world and they have no cares in the world and they can just do whatever they want. It's like, man, and I got to live by the strictures of this book and all this stuff and I got to go to church on Sunday and I can't stay out late on Saturday and all this stuff. And What's going to happen to the unbeliever? stomped in the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. 
right? Those who seek their joy in this world will have it, right? That's what Jesus says. If you seek the glory of of men, that's going to be your reward. But if you forsake this world, if you take up your cross and you follow after me, then you may have trouble in this world. I'm mashing Jesus' words here from various places, but then he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. And we are overcomers in him. And really, if you think about it, the freedom of the world, is that really freedom? They celebrate it as freedom. I'm free to do these things. And it feels like you're kind of enslaved to these things. Right? You know, it's like, why do you feel like you need to stay up till 4 o'clock in the morning do all, doing all kinds of weird things to your body and all these things? It seems like you're kind of living a life of bondage. <laughs> right? So we should not envy the freedom of the world because their end is not good. <laughs> it's not going to be good. There's so much more to this life than just seeking pleasures and things like that. But that's it for tonight. Uh, Lord willing, next time in two weeks on the 16th, uh, we'll consider all of chapter 15. How about that? You get a whole chapter next time. <laughs>